Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 25th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We are in Bristol, Tennessee this week, and while I was pondering what to present for this evening, and considering the circumstances which made our travel necessary in the first place, I could think of nothing more appropriate than a critical review of Bertrand Compré's sermon. Noah's flood was not worldwide. I actually thought this would be a, a rather cut and dry, easy project for me, but it turned out that this program is going to be a lot longer than I had initially anticipated. Before preparing for this presentation, it had probably been at least 22 years since I read this sermon. When I did read it, I was quite disappointed in many ways, which shall become evident as I proceed. While we love Bertrand Compare, and while he was certainly a notable pioneer trailblazing our path to Christian identity truth, he nevertheless maintains some critical errors, and they are evident in the conflicts which we shall find here in his own words. So I pray that a critique of this sermon also illustrates the need that we continually examine ourselves. Because when something is true, it should be able to withstand all challenges. As nearly all of our copies of Bertrand Compré's sermons, this one was also taken from Gene Snyder's transcriptions, which were published under the title Your Heritage, and digitized and prepared for electronic publication by Clifton Emmerheiser, who had also added some of his own notes. Here in this particular sermon, Clifton added only one brief note, which I will insert at the appropriate point. Of course, since this is a critical review, I will also add much of my own commentary. When Clifton published these, he did not ask me to proofread them, or perhaps there may have been many more notes included in his original. The only comparé sermons he published which Clifton had asked me to proofread, are the Revelation sermons. And with that, he published quite a few of my notes. Here, I will have many contentions and differences of opinion with Compare, although we certainly agree on the general fact that Noah's flood was not worldwide. I have also noticed that in the audio copy of this sermon at the Bertrand Compare archive at Christogenia, which was prepared many years ago from a set of Clifton's copies on cassette tapes by the original proprietor of the IsraelElect.com website. There are, according to this transcript, 145 missing words immediately following Compare's mention of the Mississippi Valley. The ellipsis, which we will bracket here in our text version of this presentation, 
occurs at the point where the original cassette recording had to be changed from side A to side B. So evidently, when it was copied to digital format, it was not copied correctly. We have also made some corrections to the transcription, although I didn't get to listen to all of it in preparation for this. I just ran out of time. So now we shall proceed with Noah's Flood Was Not Worldwide by Bertrand L. Compare. And he begins by saying, among the many mistaken and unscriptural notions commonly taught in nearly all churches is the idea that the flood mentioned in the Bible covered all the earth and drowned everybody on the earth excepting only Noah and his family, who escaped death by being in the ark. So many churches have firmly insisted that the Bible says this. When there is ample proof, the flood was not worldwide, that they have destroyed the faith of multitudes of people. They have made atheists or agnostics out of hundreds of thousands of people who might have become Christians if they had only been taught the truth about the Bible. And I would say that more likely the numbers are high into the tens of millions of people who over time have rejected lies about trees, apples, snakes, and the global flood. Compare continues and he says, part of this mistaken idea about the flood is due to the many mistranslations found in the commonly used King James Version of the Bible. But also, part of it appears to be appears plainly to be false. If you even carefully read the King James Version. Let's have a look at this, Compare says. But before we begin to look at this, I must state that the problems are greater than mere mistranslation. And Compare himself exacerbates them because he evidently did not understand them all. Throughout the sermon, he employed the chronology of the Masoretic text, following the estimation of it by the 17th century Anglican bishop James Usher. Most churches, most modern Protestant churches today follow Bishop Usher's chronology of the Bible based on the Masoretic text and so did Bertrand Compare. And he evidently took the accuracy of that chronology for granted. According to that chronology, the flood of Noah would date to approximately 2345 BC. But according to the chronology of the manuscripts of the Septuagint, the early Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it would date to no later than 3245 BC, a difference of 900 years. Differences in post-flood chronology amount to nearly another 500 years up to the birth of Abraham. Clifton once made an, I'm sorry, that figure is another 600 years up to the birth of Abraham. Clifton once made a brief paper describing the differences 
And we made charts to accompany that, which are still available on his website under the title Patriarchal Chronology. We will have a link to that in the notes to this presentation. And I would encourage everybody to go and compare the charts with the chronology of the patriarchs from the Septuagint to the chart with the chronology of the patriarchs from the Masoretic text. Clifton himself did not discover these differences, but only sought to explain them in a simple and direct fashion. Early in my own identity studies, I had read about them in the works of other writers, but honestly, I do not remember who they were. I read very early and, and sought to study it myself that the Septuagint chronology was very different from the Masoretic text chronology and also agreeable to what is known from ancient history where the Masoretic text chronology is not agreeable. There are many articles published on the internet by mainstream scholars which also explain those differences, along with the varying chronologies found in other sources, such as Flavius Josephus and the Samaritan Pentateuch. But searching through the sermons, which we have by Compare, I find no mention of the differences in the chronologies of the various manuscript traditions. Yet observing the chronology as compared to the historic records, which are found in the inscriptions of the various early Genesis 10 nations, the Septuagint chronology is far superior to that of the Masoretic text, which is virtually impossible and makes the scriptures out to be a lie and a collection of lies. So before the scope of the flood, can truly be understood, the chronology has to be corrected at least to the best possible extent. For now, Compare goes immediately to the account of the flood where it begins in Genesis chapter 6, and he says, In Genesis chapter 6, we read that Yahweh found the people so corrupt that he regretted that he had ever created them. So he decided to wipe them out by a flood. Then he warned the righteous Noah of the coming flood and told Noah to build a great boat or ark in which he and his family might find safety and where they might preserve a few of each kind of the animals. In Genesis chapter 7, it tells how Noah received the final warning that the time was now at hand and that he should move into the ark. Then it says, according to the King James Version, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And now skipping from verse 12 to verse 18, Compare says, And the waters prevailed, and were increased greatly upon the earth. 
And the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. And the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle, and of beast and of every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, and every man. And then skipping verses 22 and 23. And the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. Now Comparate reads into Genesis chapter 8. And Yahweh remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And Yahweh made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. And then skipping verse 2. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. Note that in Genesis chapter 6, it was Yahweh's desire only to destroy the Adamic man which he had created, along with the animals that were dwelling with him. But he never said anything about destroying the so-called giants, which were in the earth in those days, who were the cause of the corruption of the children of Adam. Continuing, Compre reacts to his citation describing the waters of the flood. Now, first, let's see what the translators have done to what Moses originally wrote. You will remember the King James Version says that the rain was upon the earth and the waters increased greatly upon the earth and all flesh died that moved upon the earth. But are they right in translating this, the earth? Definitely not. Remember that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 14, when Yahweh had driven Cain away in punishment for his murder of Abel. The King James Version quotes Cain as saying, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth. So what did Cain do? Climb into his rocket ship and take off for outer space? I think Wesley Swift may have answered that one. Of course not. He was not driven from the face of the earth, and he never said so. Only the translators said so. And Compare is certainly correct that if this word earth means to refer to the entire planet in Genesis chapter 7, then it must also be interpreted in that same manner in Genesis chapter 4. But the meaning in Genesis chapter 4 is clear, that earth refers only to the land, to a particular land. And there is plenty of additional evidence to see that such is also true here in Genesis chapter 7. Compre did not raise all of that evidence, so perhaps we can fill in some of what he missed. For now, he discusses the Hebrew word translated as earth 
in Genesis chapter 4. And he says, the word Cain used was Adama, meaning the ground. Yahweh had told him that his farming would no longer be successful. So Cain said, thou hast driven me off of the ground. Cain was a husband and he was, he was a farmer. That's why his sacrifice included the fruits and vegetables and produce of his farming, where Abel was a shepherd. So Cain said, thou hast driven me off of the ground. You have probably noticed that Cain's descendants today are not farmers. They run pawn shops and other money-lending institutions. Of course, they have many other vocations, but none of them include farming. When we come to the seventh chapter of Genesis, where it is talking about the flood, wherever it says that the flood covered the earth, the Hebrew word used in the original writing by Moses was Eretz, meaning the land. The flood did cover the particular land where it occurred. It was a local flood which covered one particular region or land, not the whole earth. And that Hebrew word, Eretz, Strong's number 776, it appears in 2,190 verses of the Old Testament for a total of 2,505 times. So it appears in a few hundred verses more than once. In the King James Version, according to Bible Works Software, it was translated 2,504 times but I will not attempt to account for the difference as both figures are from the same source. These same statistics inform us that Eretz in the King James Version was translated as land 1,543 times. That's over 60%. As earth 712 times. And that's probably a little less than 30%. As country, 140 times. As ground, 98 times. As world, four times. As way, three times. As common, for whatever reason, one time. As field, one time. And for whatever reason, and evidently in the plural, as nations, one time, and as wilderness in company with another world, one time. It should be clear from that observation alone that the word does not describe the planet as a whole, as we may often use that term earth today. The way we understand English words today, as compared with 1611, it could probably be translated differently in a lot of places because it simply means land. Now, continuing with Compare, again, notice that it specifies 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. In ancient times, 
Two different lengths of the cubit were in use. The Hebrew sacred cubit, and my numbers are a little different from this, but that's okay because the, the, the correlation is equivalent or, or just as valid. The Hebrew sacred cubit of 25 inches and the common cubit of 20 and 5 eighths inches. Therefore, the waters rose above the tops of the mountains of which he was speaking by either 25 feet 9 inches or 31 feet 3 inches, according to which cubit you use. If this meant that all the mountains on earth were covered, the waters would have to cover Mount Everest, which is nearly six miles high. Therefore, all the earth would be covered by water six miles deep. In that case, where could it have run off to when the flood subsided? No, I don't mean that the Bible was that badly mistaken. Only the translators made this mistake because they took a Hebrew word, Eretz, which means that land, and mistranslated it to mean the whole world. A little later, we shall look over the evidence which proves where that land was. And I don't necessarily agree with that evidence for reasons that we will explain later. We cannot read what was in the mind of the King James Version translators when they had made their translation. But at the least, they translated Eretz in these chapters in a manner so that it could be misinterpreted to refer to the whole world or planet, whether they meant it to or not. I would not even think that the concepts of the planet as a whole, as Earth, as it is perceived today, were even fully or uniformly formulated in 1611. Copernicus may have been studied by this time. Most of his writing was from about 60 years before 1611, when it was first published. But not Galileo, who was never published until a few years, at least a few years after 1611. So the concepts which they presented were not fully accepted, were not even fully studied by this time. So we can't really guess what was in the mind of the King James Version translators when they wrote, when they saw the word Eretz and wrote Earth. They didn't necessarily mean to picture or draw an image of the entire planet and everything on it. They couldn't have meant that. As for the question of what would happen to all of the water. If the entire planet were flooded, the argument is valid, but nevertheless debated. The radius of the Earth is 3,958.8 miles. The Earth being covered with water six miles deep, the radius would be extended by that figure to 3,964.8 miles. Based on that radius, the volume of the water sitting atop the Earth would be nearly 1.2 billion cubic miles. But, and that seems like a lot of water, but that is only a small fraction, 0.4% of the volume of the Earth, 
which is nearly 260 billion cubic miles. Now, I must say that for this presentation, for our purposes here, we must disregard the contention that the planet is not a sphere. We're only using the best data we have in order to make calculations if the planet is a sphere, which I believe it is, but it doesn't matter one way or another. The magnitude of what we consider to be the Earth is much larger than even 1.2 billion cubic miles of water. And a cubic mile is, of course, water which would fit a square, a mile long, a mile wide, and a mile high, a cubic mile. Imagine a swimming pool, a mile long, a mile wide, and a mile high, and that's a cubic mile of water. So on the other hand, while there are underground aquifers in many places on the Earth, from observation, we generally do not see oceans, rivers, and lakes simply being absorbed into the ground. Floodwaters need to run off somewhere, or they remain stationary and form a new sea or lake. If the lake is not replenished with new waters, it eventually dries up through the long and slow process of evaporation. An example of such a lake is the Aral Sea, which was at one time the fourth largest lake in the world, but which took about 60 years to evaporate and dry up after the Soviet government diverted the rivers from which it was fed. If the relatively small Aral Sea took 60 years to dry up, then Noah's floodwaters must have run off to some other land. They did not dry up or disappear by soaking into the ground within a few months. It was five months that Noah was on the ark before land appeared, any land at all. And that land was evidently in a high mountainous area. And then, according to the scriptures we just read in Genesis chapter 7, it was three months before the water subsided. If it took the Aral Sea 60 years to dry up, then Noah's floodwaters didn't dry up in a total of eight months. They must have run off to somewhere. We have our, um, the land around our home is flooded and the home is elevated, so it's not really a problem. And it probably reached about three and a half feet deep, as far as I could tell from our security cameras. And the flood has been passed now for about four days, the crest where we live. But it's still about eight inches of water, maybe 10. So it takes time for water to flow out of an area after a flood, but it doesn't take that much time, as if the water dried up or seeped into the ground. The Aral Sea took 60 years to dry up once its water supply was cut off. So Noah's flood, the waters must have run off somewhere. They couldn't have just died up, dried up or 
sunk into the ground, soaked into the ground. That too would be a very long process if it were possible, depending on the composition of the ground. But now, in my opinion, Compré runs into another problematical argument. And he says, if the whole earth was covered by six miles of water, then all nations must have been completely exterminated. And that part would certainly be true. But the problem becomes evident where he continues and he says, however, and this is a huge problem because it sets the Bible in direct opposition to history. He says, however, Babylonian, Egyptian, and Chinese history runs right through this period without a break. The Bible gives the date of the flood as commencing in 2345 BC, Bishop Usher's chronology, and ending in 2344 BC. In Lower Sumer, later called Chaldea, which occupied the same plains of Shinar to which Noah's family journeyed after the flood, the city of Ur of the Chaldees was the leading city from about 2400 BC until about 2285 BC. Its history is not broken by any flood in this period. Farther to the north, Babylon was rising to power from about 2400 BC on and reached a great height of civilization under the famous king Hammurabi, who lived at the same time as the Hebrew patriarch Abraham about 2250 BC. Hammurabi is famous for a legal code which he had created, which survives in inscriptions to this day. Compray says, there is no break in this history due to a flood. In Egypt, the 11th dynasty began to reign about 2375 BC over a great and powerful nation. The 11th dynasty ruled to about 2212 BC and was followed by the 12th dynasty, which ruled to 2000 BC. There was no break in the 11th dynasty at the time of Noah's flood, 2345 BC. The nation continued to be large and powerful throughout this period. Here, Compare is referring to the history of the nations of the, of the biblical world according to information provided in ancient inscriptions and other discoveries by which various chronologies can be pieced together. While these are not entirely accurate, certain pivotal events recorded in the inscriptions of more than one nation, such as wars or treaties or mentions of notable kings, allow historians to create a general narrative by coordinating various chronologies even when there are no written, rec no written chronicles. But Compare's problem is that the chronology provided by the Masoretic text of the Bible may lead one to deduce that the flood of Noah occurred around 2345 B.C., as Bishop Usher had concluded. In Genesis chapter 10, we are informed that the, tri the tribes which had provided that Babylonian history to which Compare refers had descended from Shem and Ham. We are also informed that Mitzrayim, which is the name translated as Egypt throughout the Old Testament, 
was also a descendant of Ham. The word from which the name Egypt is derived is from the much later Greek name for the country. Throughout the Old Testament, Egypt is always Mitzrayim, the son of Ham. So if these nations in Egypt and Mesopotamia had descended from the sons of Noah, as the Genesis record attests, then how could they have existed as nations before the flood of Noah? Sorry, that's not possible. Following the historical narrative and abiding by the chronology of the Masoretic text, this is a serious discrepancy that places history in direct opposition to Scripture, and it cannot be overcome. Either you have to get rid of Genesis chapter 10, or you have to get rid of the chronology in the Masoretic text. You can't have it both ways. Compare evidently wanted it both ways, or he just didn't see his own conflict in his own thinking. I don't know which it was. I can't, I can't answer for what was going on in Compare's mind. There are also other features of the chronology provided by the Masoretic text, which create unrealistic and even impossible circumstances. For example, when, when Abraham was born, if the Masoretic chronology is true, then that same year Noah would have died, and seven other generations of Abraham's fathers would have still been living which is every post-deluge patriarch who preceded him except for Peleg and Nahor. So, if Shem, Arphaxad, Selah, Heber, Ru, and Sarug were all still alive when Abraham was born, along with his father Terah, you would think that at least one sentence in the narrative of Scripture may help to verify that circumstance. But there is not one. And in fact, according to the Masoretic text, Heber would have actually outlived Abraham by four years, while Heber, Arphaxad, and even Shem would have outlived Abraham's father Terah. Now, how, how does a man outlive his own great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson? That's what it is. That's what Abraham, that's what Terah is to Shem. Terah is Shem's seven times great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. If the chronology of the Masoretic text is true, Shem would have outlived Terah. Shem would have outlived Terah by 75 years, and he would not have died until Abraham was 150 years old. Incredible. All of this is evident in charts and in graphs at an article at Clifton Emmerheiser's website titled Patriarchal Chronology. But there really is no conflict between Bible and history because the chronology of the Masoretic text is not true. It's ludicrous.
While we may acknowledge that no chronology constructed from the rather incomplete records of our scriptures is perfect, the chronology of the Septuagint is much more accurate when it is compared to the history and inscriptions of those same peoples. Once an approximate date for the flood of Noah is deduced from the Septuagint, we find it happened 900 years earlier than Compare had imagined. In 3245 BC, there was no Babylon, as it is known later in history, and there were no Assyrians. Hammurabi was an Amorite by race, and in 3245 BC, there were no Amorites. There were no Egyptian hieroglyphics, and there were no pharaohs in Egypt. <clears throat> Not even the earliest estimated dates for the beginning of the first dynasty of pharaohs goes back beyond 3200 BC. They are the earliest estimated dates. Furthermore, according to the Septuagint chronology, the only patriarch still living when Abraham was born was his father Terah while his grandfather, Nahor, had died five years before his birth. The texts of Flavius Josephus and the Samaritan Pentateuch do not entirely agree with the Septuagint, but they are much closer to the Septuagint than they are to the Masoretic text. Unfortunately, Genesis chapters 5 and 11 the pivotal chapters in determining the chronology of the flood of Noah did not survive in the Dead Sea Scrolls. No wonder. Imagine that. So while Compare had good intentions, he cannot use Babylonian, Assyrian, Amorite, which is Canaanite, or Egyptian history to prove that the flood was not worldwide. That's a major error. It's a major error that he didn't realize the conflict in what he was promoting with the records in Genesis chapter 10, but he didn't, and that's unfortunate. And now he moves into another problematical area, as he had already mentioned the Chinese. And he says, accurate history of China begins nearly 3000 BC. The Shu King historic record of China shows that King Yeo came to the throne in 2356 BC, 11 years before the start of Noah's flood, and ruled China for many years after the flood. During the reign of Yeo, the Shu King reports that the Huang Ho River, which drains the mountains and a great basin in Xinjiang province, had excessive floods for three generations. Here again, there was no break in history. The Chinese nation was not wiped out. Its own records show it continued in existence right through the period of Noah's flood. Well, Noah's flood didn't last three generations, the water. It was gone in eight months, according to Genesis chapter seven. Now, actually, there is no substantial knowledge of Chinese history until after the emergence of the Zia dynasty 
Now, that might be what Compare calls shu, S-H-U. And I understand that these words that the Chinese transliterate into English, they don't sound the way our English letters do. I'll um, give an example of that. President Clinton, back a few years ago, had a cabinet member named Shaw. It was pronounced Shaw. But in Chinese, it was spelled it was spelled in English H S I A. Now I don't know why the Chinese can't liter- transliterate a Chinese name into English to match the way we pronounce our letters in English. But it was spelled H S I A, and they pronounced it Shaw every time she was mentioned, which to me is just freaking ridiculous. Screw those chinks. If they can't spell words in English, they we, we shouldn't pay them any mind, but we shouldn't pay them any mind anyway, right? So they spell this dynasty, this early dynasty, Zia, X-I-A. And I'm not going to pronounce that any way but the way that letters sound in English. I don't care if it's pronounced Shu, it's Zia, the way we pronounce X-I-A. The... Emergence of the Zia dynasty, which is believed to have been around 2100 BC, but even that date is highly debatable. It's questionable. The Chinese king of which Compare speaks is legendary, but is generally dated to have lived at around the time when Compare thought that the flood of Noah had occurred. There are legends of floods associated with that Chinese king, but that does not mean that they are Noah's flood, and in fact, There were many floods over many years, as Compare himself attested. Floods of great magnitude appear periodically in many places on Earth. In the northern parts of North America, rivers are sometimes stopped with ice in the winter. And if the ice melts too rapidly in the spring, entire towns or villages can be destroyed as the waters rushed downstream. That very thing happened on the Susquehanna River in 1904, resulting in the destruction of most of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, in a massive flood. All along the southern coasts, as I now know all too well, floods and surges of the sea caused by storms can do the same thing. In areas under the ocean, which are prone to earthquakes, nearby lands can be flooded and cities destroyed as tsunamis are triggered. Many of these events are of such significance that they remain in the memory of local cultures for many centuries. So not all ancient floods are Noah's flood, even though naive churchmen going out to make converts of heathens in the colonial period had that concept that whenever a great flood was remembered by local people, it must have been Noah's flood. They're looking to verify their own scriptures at the mouths of squat monsters and, and, and chinkolators. And, and we don't need to do that. What may be true, however, is that there are petroglyphs and discoveries of pottery, much of it containing inscribed symbols that have not yet been deciphered, 
which do help to establish an unbroken presence of hominids in China, predating the flood of Noah, and even the creation of Adam by at least several millennia. But writing did not emerge in China until the late second millennium BC, perhaps as late as 1200 BC, which is evidenced in the ancient Chinese oracle bone script that is commonly dated to that period. That's the first writing in China. But we still agree with Compare's conclusion. Even if we do not like the arguments which he has presented, where he says, therefore, the Bible is correct in stating the flood covered only Eretz, that land. The translators are wrong when they change the meaning of what Moses really wrote in Genesis chapter 7 and say the flood covered all the earth. There is actually a Hebrew word that, that's translated as world, which may have been used if the writer of Genesis had believed that the entire planet was covered with water, and that word is tebel. Tebel would have been more appropriate. That word is tebel, Strong's number 8398, would probably have been more appropriate than Eretz if the translator wanted to express the concept that the entire planet was flooded. But even that could be argued. But Tebel wasn't used. Unfortunately, <clears throat> Compre in this sermon does not, in my opinion, resort to the best witness of the scope of the flood of Noah. Not at all. That is the scripture itself. Rather, his claims about history and the flood are even contrary to scripture, as we have demonstrated. In his sermon on the Cain satanic seed line, Compare had properly associated the so-called giants of Genesis chapter 6 with the fallen angels described by the apostles and in the Revelation. He further observed that those giants were actually Nephilim, or fallen ones, which is also correct. The fallen ones already having been fallen, Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 states in part that there were giants, or Nephilim, fallen ones, in the earth in those days and also after that, upon which it begins to describe the nature of the sin which had precipitated Noah's flood, the pun is intended. So the Nephilim were already in the earth, as the fall of the angels must have preceded the creation of Adam, and the Nephilim remained in the earth after that time after the descendants of Adam had been destroyed for having mated with them. But the Nephilim could not have been on the Ark of Noah. Yahweh God was in the process of punishing the children of Adam in the flood because they were mixing themselves with the Nephilim, and therefore it would have been contrary to his stated purpose for Noah and his family if he had Noah preserved the Nephilim on the Ark. Noah was told explicitly 
what to admit onto the ark. And it cannot be imagined that he may have been disobedient. Only eight people, as it is also attested in the New Testament, were saved through the waters of the flood. Yet the Nephilim continued to survive after the flood. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, the Anakim are identified as giants in the King James Version, where the Hebrew word is also Nephilim. But in Deuteronomy chapter 2, the Anakim are identified as giants, where the Hebrew word is Rephaim. And by that and other passages, we see that the Rephaim were also descended from all the Nephilim. Others of the Rephaim mentioned later in Scripture included Agabashan and Goliath and his brothers. Outside of the Bible, it is evident that there were the Nephilim giants who had ruled over at least several of the cities of Mesopotamia in ancient times, including the legendary king Gilgamesh. So the Nephilim, having survived after the flood in several subgroups in diverse places, it is evident that the flood could not have covered the entire planet, but rather it only covered the particular land where the children of Adam were dwelling. In Genesis chapter 10, there is a genealogical table identifying all of the descendants of Noah as they existed and were divided into nations at the time when Moses had written. But in Genesis chapters 14 and 15, there are tribes of people who are not listed in Genesis chapter 10, where it is evident that other races, which were not related to Adam, who are first apparent in scriptures in Genesis chapter 4, because Cain had found a wife and built a city in the land of Nod, had also survived the flood of Noah. Among these are the Zuzims of Genesis 14.5, and their name simply means roving creatures. So they really did not even have a name. In that passage, the Emims are also mentioned, and later they are identified as Anakim. Apparently, some lexicons define the word Anakim to mean long necks and Emim to mean terrors. So it is evident that these tribes were only called by pejoratives, and neither did they have proper names. They didn't know who their daddy was. Evidently. Later in Genesis chapter 15, five more tribes are listed among the tribes of Canaan who have no genealogy with Adam. Four of these are the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Perizzites, and the Girgashites. In Genesis chapter 13, the Perizzites were already distinguished from the Canaanites. But the Hittites, Amorites, Girgashites, and Jebusites are divisions of the Canaanites, as we are informed in Genesis chapter 10. And I'm sorry, I have Girgashites twice there in my notes. I will repair it later. Then there are the Kenites, who are the descendants of Cain and whatever people from which he had obtained a wife. And the Rephaim, who are of the Nephilim, are also mentioned as being among the Canaanites, which is something that later scriptures further elucidate. 
All of these are the tribes of Canaan, which the Israelites were commanded to exterminate. Half of them came from Canaan himself, being Canaanites. The others are either Kenites, the descendants of Cain, the Rephaim, who are the Nephilim, or several tribes that have no genealogy or origin from Adam or Noah, whose origin is therefore obscure, just like the Zuzims, the roving creatures of Genesis 14. Their origins are obscure. They are not at all mentioned or described in Scripture. Furthermore, we know that these other tribes who are listed in Genesis chapter 15, but who are not found in Genesis chapter 10, are not descendants of Noah, because Moses was writing from his own perspective when he wrote out the genealogy, and not from any ancient perspective. Therefore, knowing these tribes, yet not including them in the genealogy, we can be confident that Moses did not consider them to be of the race of Noah or of Adam. If they are not of the race of Noah, they must have survived the flood of Noah, and therefore the flood could not have covered the entire planet. Now, Compare will return to Genesis chapter 10 later in his sermon. But first he turns to discuss the geography of the area where he thought that the flood of Noah had occurred. And I won't agree with this either. I'm sorry, it just has to be that way. <laughs> so Compare says, this leaves us ready to inquire where the flood did occur. For this, we will have to start with Adam and Eve and trace where they and their descendants went. They started out in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. Tell us that a river went out of Eden, and this river divided into four streams. It names these four rivers, Pisan and Gihon, neither of which can be identified among the rivers existing today. Hidekel, which is the ancient name of the Tigris and, and this is a mistake on Capare's part, Hidekel, which is the ancient name of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. The Tigris and Euphrates rise in what is today extreme southeastern Turkey, a little north of modern Iraq, making some allowances for the fact that many rivers have changed their courses considerably in the passing of several thousand years, this is still, this still places the Garden of Eden at the northern end of ancient Akkad, which is ancient Assyria. <coughs> Akkad was only a city, not an entire region, although the Assyrians called their language Akkadian, or scholars called the Assyrian language Akkadian. Compré should have actually checked this passage before he wrote his sermon. As Moses mentioned the Euphrates by name and as a river, which is distinct from the Hidekel, they're not the same river, Tigris and Euphrates. Hidekel doesn't describe the Tigris and the Euphrates. Hidekel is clearly the name for the Tigris in ancient times, in Moses' time, and Moses mentioned the Euphrates. We believe that the four rivers of the Garden of Eden can be identified, although one of those rivers is now dried up. We also have a more 
expansive notion of what had constituted the Garden of Eden. The following citation, which includes an actual citation from Genesis chapter 2, is from part 3 of our Pragmatic Genesis series, which was presented here in October of 2013, although I will add some further comments. First, we will quote Genesis chapter 2. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted, and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pisan, that is, it which compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Now it is very clear, as I'll state here again in later scripture, that Havilah was in Arabia, in the land across the Jordan from ancient Palestine. So, that's how we know where this river was, because we know in later scriptures where Havilah was. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellium and the Onyx Stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. Now, that must refer to the land of Cush, not below Egypt, the original land of Cush where the empire of Nimrod was. Nimrod was a son of Cush. So the land was called Cush, and that river I will discuss shortly. And the name of the third river is Hidekel. That is it which goes toward the east of Assyria. So these rivers are not being given in any geographical order. And the fourth river, is Euphrates. Moses is giving a geographical description which correlates to his own time, approximately 1500 to 1450 BC. Of course, Havilah, Cush, which is Ethiopia, and Asher were not even born until after the flood of Noah. And therefore, these names could not have belonged to the regions which they described in the actual time of Adam. Rather, Noah used the contemporary names to describe these rivers so that people of his own time and later could identify the location of the garden. The land of Havilah can be identified as having been in Arabia from Genesis chapter 25, verse 18, and from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, the first river, the Pisan, may be identified with the river which is now dried out, that once flowed through the Arabian desert, ostensibly before it was a desert, because Arabia was not always a desert. In biblical times, it was very fertile. Flocks were raised there. Cities were built there. It was far from a desert. Even the Greeks built the built the Decapolis there, which means 10 cities. Archaeologists now call this river the Kuwait River. It's a recognizable dried up riverbed. It evidently had its sources in the mountains of Western Arabia near the Red Sea and flowed eastward to the Euphrates. The second river, the Gihon, 
seems to refer to, and, and this is the only part of this presentation which may be considered conjectural, the Gihon seems to refer to the Karen River, which flows from the Zagros Mountains and currently empties into the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The third river, the Hidekel, on the east of Assyria, appears to be the Tigris. It must be the Tigris. And the fourth, the Euphrates, which together encompass Mesopotamia. These four rivers emptied into the Persian Gulf, running into the same confluence, and three of them are still there today. Evidently, as can also be determined from ancient history, the Arabian Peninsula was a much more fertile place at one time. However, the English version of the language of Genesis seems to indicate that the rivers flowed in the opposite direction, and we are informed that it had not yet rained upon the earth in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. So the rivers may not have formed in the manner in which we today understand the forming of rivers through rainfall. However, the Greek version says that the river was divided into four beginnings or sources and not necessarily four heads. Therefore, however it was that the antediluvian ecosystem had functioned, what we can conclude here is that Moses depicted the ancient Garden of Eden as all of the land from the current day Arabian Peninsula and the Red Sea in the west to the Zagros Mountains of Persia in the east and centered in the ancient land of Sumer, or as it was later called, Babylonia. Now returning to Campare, the plains of Shinar were in the ancient land of Sumer. When Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden, Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 tells us that Yahweh placed cherubim with a flaming sword at the east side of the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve from returning and having access to the tree of life. If this guard was to accomplish anything, it must have been placed between Adam and the Garden of Eden. And this isn't true. I will disagree with this also. So we see that Adam and Eve were driven out to the east. From Eden, Adam's course would naturally have led him across northern Iran. This is all conjecture. Around the southern end of the Caspian Sea into what was formerly called Chinese Turkestan and today is known as Xinjiang, Xinjiang, Xinjiang province in the extreme west of China. Now, I cannot agree that the scripture is clear that Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden to the east. First, after his parents had already been driven out, which was before he was even born, Cain was driven out to the east of Eden from where his parents were. And we are informed that the land of Nod was located on the east of Eden. As we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So it may be evident that Adam and Eve must have raised Cain and Abel elsewhere than the land of Nod, which was on the east of Eden. 
But more significantly, Compré is mistaken that the cherubim, cherubim is a plural form of cherub. He is mistaken that the cherubim were placed on the east of Eden to prevent Adam from returning to the tree of life. Rather, the cherubim were only symbolic of the fact that the path would be kept or preserved by which Adam could ultimately return to the tree of life. This is confirmed where the cherubim next appear atop the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the tablets of the law and were arranged around the mercy seat of Yahweh. In our opinion, the cherubim were placed on the east end of the garden as a symbol, because that is where the sun rises. And in the rising of the sun, the Adamic race is rejoined to the tree of life, which is Yahweh God in Christ. It may also be significant that the cherubim were placed on the east side of the garden because that is the location of the land of Nod, which is wandering and an allegory for sin. In any event, it is evident that the place where Noah first landed after the flood was east of Shinar, which is in Babylonia. Shinar is Babylonia, as Compre will explain a little further on. But that does not mean the flood was centered in some distant place in China. However, here Compare presents that thesis where he continues and he says, In the southern part of Xinjiang, there is a great basin rimmed by high mountains on all sides, with an outlet on the eastern end of it. Through the mountains were the headwaters of the Huangho River, the Yellow River rises. This basin is nearly all desert today, but it bears evidence of a fertile and heavily inhabited past. Explorers have found ruins of ancient cities, uncovered by the drifting sands of the desert. Also, the known geological structure shows, in ancient times at least, beneath this desert lay enormous underground natural reservoirs, Caverns filled with water. It is the same geological structure which furnishes artesian well water in many parts of the world today. Now, while I do not remember many of the details described by earlier Christian identity writer Frederick Haberman and the other British Israel writers whom I may have read over 20 years ago, they had also identified the Taran Basin or perhaps the more westerly Pamir Plateau, as the location of Noah's flood. This Xinjiang, as Kampere pronounces it, or Xinjiang, Z, I'm sorry, X-I-N-J-I-A-N-G is how it's spelled in modern dictionaries and encyclopedias. They identified the Taran Basin, as the location of Noah's flood, or perhaps some of them, the more westerly Pamir Plateau. Xinjiang, a province in western China, is several hundred miles northeast of the Pamir Plateau, on the opposite side of the Pamir Mountains. It is a province of western China where the Tarim Basin is located. Sometimes it's called the Xinjiang Basin, 
And later on in this sermon, Compré does identify it by that name, Karen Basin. But the oldest of the ancient cities or other settlements which have been discovered in Xinjiang province are dated by archaeologists to be only 3,500 to perhaps as many as 4,000 years old. Human remains called mummies, only because of how remarkably they were preserved in an arid climate, are also dated to no more than 4,000 years old. It is admitted that the race of those mummies is European, and that does not mean that they were actually from Europe. But it is highly unlikely that these people were from before the flood of Noah. Other archaeological discoveries in Xinjiang date to the Buddhist or early Silk Route periods. I'll have a list of references linked with this article when it is posted at Christagenia. There are no archaeological discoveries of any significance in Xinjiang which may be attributed to the presence of an antediluvian Adamic people, an Adamic people who lived before the flood. So Compré's thesis on the location of the flood fails him, and it needs to be revised by modern identity Christians. For now, he says, these underground reservoirs were covered by waterproof layers of rock, which kept the waters beneath from overflowing out of the land surface above them. In this mountain-rimmed basin, then a fertile and well-populated land, and there's really no evidence for that, Adam and Eve, or at least their descendants of a few generations later, had settled. Now, in my opinion, it is folly to attempt to locate the precise area which the descendants of Adam had inhabited before the flood of Noah. That is because when all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, as it says in Genesis chapter 7, it seems to signify that there were great geological changes to the land which they inhabited so that we may never be able to recognize it today. So Compare's search for a land which is presently compatible with that description is vain. And we are better off not taking a position on the land where the flood had occurred. Furthermore, if Cain was driven off to the east of the land that Adam and Eve had inhabited, and Cain's destination was the land of Nod, which bordered on the east of the Garden of Eden, then Adam and Eve and their descendants may well have inhabited land somewhere west of Nod, and Compré's entire thesis disintegrates because Cain was sent to the east and ended up on the east end of the garden in the land of Nod. So Adam and Eve must have been west of that, or it would make no sense that Cain was sent to the east. So Compré's thesis disintegrates. Therefore, I cannot accept any fables about the Tarim Basin or Xinjiang province, all of which are completely without merit. And we will see that further as we progress throughout this sermon. Now, Compré makes a digression, which is necessary in order to clarify his assertions. 
And he says, you who've studied these lessons already know that Adam was not the first man. He was only the first man of the present white race. Adam and Eve found this land to which they had come already populated by an Asiatic people among whom they had to live. While we cannot say that any of the people who may have been in their vicinity were Asiatic, it is true that branches of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represents the fallen angels and from which other races must have sprung, had apparently always been nearby. So I cannot argue with all of this. I don't know how pertinent it is to our thesis that the flood was not worldwide. Continuing with Compare, through the following generations, the inevitable happened. Wherever there is integration, intermarriages, and mongrelization of the races follows. If Yahweh had no purposes in mind, which could not be properly served by the Asiatic and Negro races, there would have been no reason for him to create Adam. Neither could the purposes which Adam and his descendants were intended to serve be fulfilled by a mongrelized race. The consequences of this mongrelization are described in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We find the word there, mistranslated earth, is the Hebrew word eretz which only means the land, that particular land. There is a reason for using this Hebrew word. This was the place where integration and mongrelization had taken place with its degenerative effects as compared to the qualities possessed by each race separately. Now, in reference to this, Clifton M. Iser had made his only note for this sermon, and he wrote the following. Compare stated, in Genesis chapter 6, we read that Yahweh found the people so corrupt, he regretted that he had ever made them. Surely Yahweh didn't have the non-Adamic in mind when he said this. Rather, Yahweh regretted creating the Adamic race only to be mixed with the non-Adamic. The other races already being satanic really wouldn't make that much difference. In Genesis chapter 6, the word for man is Adam. So, of course, that can't have anything to do with the other races. Of course, Compare espoused the heresy, which we call the sixth and eighth day creation theory. The errant belief that Yahweh created other races on the sixth day, and the white Adamic race on the eighth day of creation. But there was no eighth day of creation. And Yahweh only created one race, which is the white Adamic race. On the sixth day, he created Adam. He didn't create anything else but Adam. The word Adam cannot pertain to other races. The other races with whom many of the Adamic nations have since mingled are among the corruptions of his creation perpetrated by the fallen angels. A history which is wanting in Genesis, but which is revealed in the gospel and revelation of Christ. We already have addressed this in many papers by both Clifton and myself, which may be found at Christagenia, 
and it is far too long a digression to say much more about it here. So we will return to Compare. We find confirmation of this in the reason why Yahweh spared Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, the King James Version tells us, Noah was perfect in his generations. A meaningless phrase. When anything in the King James Version fails to make good sense, it is a sign that you should go behind the mistranslation and see what the words were in the original Hebrew or Greek. The word here translated generations was the Hebrew word toledah, which means ancestry. Noah was perfect in his ancestry, a purebred, not a mongrel. And here Compare made another error. It, it's an oversimplification, actually. And I must state that all of these small errors can ultimately serve to discredit Christian identity truth if we do not correct them. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, the word generations appears twice. Where it says, these are the generations of Noah, the word is toledah, Strong's number 8435, and it does mean descent. But Compare made an error and actually told a lie because where it says that Noah was perfect in his generations, the word is not toledah. The word is door. Strong's number 1755. And that word has a variety of uses. Door may refer to a period of time, a remnant, a generation as of men, or even a habitation. In my opinion, the meaning that connects all of these definitions is that door refers to what remains or what abides. I also believe that the Latin words, which give us English terms such as durable, duration, and endure, had come from the same Hebrew term. The Latin verb durare must have come from the Hebrew word dur. Noah was perfect in his generations because he and his family were pure specimens of what had remained of the Adamic man which Yahweh God had created. So while Compare's conclusion is correct, this important distinction between the two different words and their meanings must be identified and explained, and they cannot be confused, as Compare has just confused them. He created a lie by doing that. Now Compare continues, Noah and his family were the last remaining pure-blooded Adamites in the world. Therefore, Yahweh needed to save them to carry out the purposes he had planned for the Adamic people. The mongrelized people among whom Noah and his family lived must be removed or they would be a trap which would eventually lead to the complete end of the pure-blooded Adamites. Now, this is not the right perspective. The mongrelized people were not all removed, not at all. 
which is clear from Genesis chapter 6, where it says that there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. And by saying after that, it must refer to the time following the flood where we have witnessed the continued presence of the Nephilim. Rather, as Yahweh states in Genesis chapter 6, the flood was to punish the Adamic race for violating the only commandment which it had been given, which is not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yahweh expressly stated in Genesis chapter 6 that he was punishing the race of Adam. He was destroying Adam from off the earth, not the other races, not the Nephilim. Adam was given one commandment in Genesis chapter 2, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the commandment transgressed in Genesis chapter 3, and that was the commandment transgressed in Genesis chapter 6, or there could have been no punishment. But the flood was to punish Adam for that transgression, or the race of Adam for that transgression, not to punish the other races, not to destroy them, not to destroy the Nephilim. The Nephilim continued to survive long after the flood. They still survive today. Once again, returning to Compare, have we had any other evidence to support our view that it was this region where Adam and Eve and their descendants settled, referring to the Karen Basin? Yes, remember that Adam and Eve were driven out of Eden to the eastward. Later, when Cain murdered Abel, and as a punishment, was banished from the land where Adam and Eve lived, Genesis 4.16 tells us, Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. The Hebrew word Nod means wandering. In the upper Tigris and Euphrates valleys, north of Eden, these rivers were running swiftly downhill from their mountain sources. Therefore, they cut deep channels in the ground. Even today, we could find the traces of the ancient diversion dams built by the ancients to raise up the water level up close to the surface of the ground. Then they would not have to pump it so high to get it into their irrigation canals. And it cannot be told just how ancient these ancients actually were. And even though these rivers have over time cut deep channels so that their courses are unlikely to change, the water level in the river is usually not that far below the surrounding riverbanks as images of those rivers found in the literature describing the geography of the area ascertained. Furthermore, the slower flow of the Euphrates River has often been contrasted to the much swifter Tigris River, so their characteristics are not the same. <clears throat> Returning to Compare. Farther to the south, in the lower Tigris and Euphrates valleys, where the slope was no longer steep, the accumulation of silt picked up by the rivers where they ran swiftly was now settling to the bottom of the riverbeds, constantly raising the level. And this is more true of the Euphrates than it is of the Tigris. The Euphrates has a much larger silting problem. Every high water season, the rivers overflowed their banks and flooded the valleys. 
This is exactly the same as we have in our own Mississippi Valley. These annual floods washed away people's houses and sent them fleeing to higher ground. Therefore, it was correctly called the land of Nod, the land of wandering, and I don't agree with that assessment because the rivers were in Eden, not east of Eden. So I don't know why Compare is um, trying to make this explanation. To me, the land of Nod means the land of sin because everything outside of the, the whole world, outside of the garden where Yahweh had established Adam, lied in sin. The whole world was in the power of the wicked one. That's why I believe that Nod means wandering in relation to sin, not wandering in relation to other races of people having to escape the flood of the rivers. Nod was on the east of Eden. The rivers were part of Eden, according to the way I read Genesis chapter 2. The land of those rivers were all part of Eden. The purpose of those rivers was to water the Garden of Eden. Compare continues. Here Cain settled and taught the people to build high dikes along the river banks, just as we have done along the banks of the Mississippi River. This enabled them to stop the annual floods so that they could now build permanent cities of good houses. In the lower Tigris and Euphrates valleys, the land then called by its own inhabitants Sumer and later Chaldea. And of course, Compare is completely conjecturing all of this. And he is at fault for that, as we shall explain a little further on. In, in fact, very soon <laughs> in, in the next two paragraphs. Continuing with Compare. In a very few places, the Bible calls it the Plain of Shinar. That was the eldest name for the land, evidently, the lower part of Mesopotamia. After that, it was called Chaldea and Babylonia. Cain went back westward from where Adam and Eve lived. It was thus that Cain started his great empire. Yes, Cain is a well-known historical character found not only in the Bible, However, he is known in history under another name, and this too is, well, it's a huge, it, it's a grave error, which I will explain after one more sentence. Cain established an empire which extended from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea, and even took in some of the larger islands in the Mediterranean Sea. Someday I will tell you about Cain and his empire. But that is another story in another sermon titled No Evolution Here. Compare mentioned Sargon of Akkad, an Assyrian king who lived sometime around the 24th century BC. And Compare repeated the claim that this Sargon was actually the Cain of Genesis chapter 4. This was the subject of an early British Israel book titled Sargon the Magnificent, written by Mrs. Sidney Bristow, an apparently wealthy British woman 
who was also an artist and, in this respect, a con artist. Bristow based her claims on the cylinders, the, the so-called cylinders of Nabonidus, which are interpreted by some to date Narim Sin, the son and successor of Sargon of Akkad, to about 3200 BC. So then she extrapolates that date, that to date the rule of Sargon himself, to 3800 BC, so that she can connect Sargon to Cain, according to the chronology of the Masoretic text. Of course, if Cain was ruling Mesopotamia as Sargon of Akkad in 3800 BC, then if he lived as long as, say, Seth did, he could have lived, or Adam, he could have lived 900 years, all the way down to 2900 BC. No, this is ridiculous. Bristow extrapolates that 3200 BC date to date the rule of Sargon himself to 3800 BC so that she can connect Sargon to the Cain of Genesis chapter 4, according to the chronology of the Masoretic text. But the cylinders are not necessarily historically accurate, since they date only to the mid-6th century BC, the Bonidus having been the last king of the short-lived Neo-Babylonian Empire. Now, this entire scheme depends on the Masoretic text dating for the flood of Noah in the 24th century BC and the creation of Adam in the 40th century BC, or about 4000 BC. The identification of Cain with Sargon of Akkad is ludicrous and even childish, and it has served to help discredit and debunk Christian identity truth. It must be abandoned as it is in direct conflict with scripture. Sargon of Akkad was certainly an Assyrian by race. He was celebrated in the myths and legend, legends of the later Assyrian empires. And other inscriptions helped to establish the fact that he ruled sometime around the 24th century BC and not the 38th century BC, not 3800 BC. So Compare was quite naive, at the least, to accept Mrs. Bristow's fabulous lies. For Sargon of Akkad to have been an Assyrian, he must have descended from the Asher of Genesis chapter 10, who was the eponymous ancestor of the Assyrians. And he could not have been Cain or even a Kenite. Now, Compare continues arguing in, his favor, in favor of his theory that the flood of Noah occurred in the Xinjiang province of western China. And he says, another bit of evidence is found in Genesis chapter 11, verse 2 which tells us that after the flood, Noah's descendants journeyed from the east until they came to the land of Shinar. Therefore, they must have come from someplace east of the Tigris and Euphrates valleys. The only place where such a flood as the Bible describes could have occurred, eastward from the Tigris and Euphrates valleys, 
is this mountain basin in Xinjiang, which I have been talking about. Xinjiang, of course, is how Compare spelled Xinjiang. While the text does state that Noah and his family traveled from the east to the land of Shinar, that does not necessarily mean that they traveled over 2,000 miles east, as the Tarim Basin is almost exactly 2,000 miles east of Mesopotamia as the crow flies. But to make that journey through some of the world's highest mountain ranges and across several significant rivers, would one would necessarily travel many more than 2,000 miles. And Noah and his sons, at least initially, had but few people and few tools to help them on their way. Furthermore, Noah and his ark did not necessarily land after the flood in the same place where they lived before the flood. And we cannot tell the size of the area which was originally flooded. So it is not appropriate to conjecture. As now, Compre digs himself in even deeper with his own conjecture, where he continues and he says, more evidence is found in the high water mark, found in many places along the mountains which rim this basin, showing at one time this basin was a lake extending to this well-marked shoreline. The mountains which rim this valley were not fully covered for many of them range from 16,000 to 25,000 feet in height, and one even rises over 28,000 feet. But within the basin are several smaller mountains, which could be fully covered by a flood held within the higher rim of the valley. This basin, through which flows the Tarim River, and which is sometimes known as the Tarim Basin in southern Xinjiang, is identified as the site of Noah's flood. And Compare was awfully confident about that, but also awfully foolish, in my opinion. First, we must ask whether water that created a flood, which lasted only five months, as the Genesis 7 account informs us, and of which the crest of the waters would have an even shorter duration could possibly create a permanent watermark on mountain ranges, which would last for over 5,200 years, or perhaps with the Masoretic chronology, even for 4,300 years. How could five months of water create a permanent watermark on mountain ranges that would still be visible? The high point of a five-month flood would indeed be much shorter than the total duration of the flood. As the waters would gradually rise to a crest, and almost as soon as they finished rising, they would slowly start to recede. So they would hardly have time to create such a watermark. And therefore the mark, if there is one, must have a different origin. So this is not actual evidence of Noah's flood. Although it is a location that may have been flooded many times, whether the course of the river through the basin is impeded by ice or by other natural circumstances. 
Now Compare returns to the Genesis narrative. In the King James Version, Genesis chapter 7, verses 11 to 12, read, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. The rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. A more careful translation makes it clear what really happened. In Moffat's modern English translation, we read, the fountains of the great abyss burst and the sluices of heaven were opened. Smith and Goodspeed's American translation says, the fountains of the great abyss were all broken open, and the windows of the heavens were opened. A great earthquake broke up this waterproof layer of rock over the immense water-filled abyss or cavern beneath this Tarim basin, causing the floor of the valley to settle and allowed the enormous underground reservoir to overflow and submerge the valley floor. If that had happened, then before the ground had broken up in that manner, the mountains would have been a lot shorter, I guess. I, 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 don't, I don't see geological evidence ever mentioned in any article I've read on the Tarim Basin, which admits that has ever having happened. Continuing with Compare, we must remember that this entire thesis is not proven, and many of his arguments are actually defective. So we cannot take them for granted as if they are true. And he says, the great earthquake in the Himalaya mountains several years ago produced similar effects in some places. Of course, the 40 days of torrential rains added to the flood. This filled the valley high enough to submerge the mountains which were inside the valley, exactly as Genesis chapter 7 verses 19 and 20 says. Don't be misled by the mistranslation. All the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. The word mistranslated heaven in the he is the Hebrew word shameh, meaning the sky. Since this Tarim Basin is somewhat more than 350 miles wide by more than 650 miles long, all the sky visible from anywhere near the center of this valley would cover only this valley and therefore only those lower mountains which were within the valley itself. And I think that's bullshit. That's Compare stretching to make Genesis true while putting the flood in this valley, but it can't be true. Compare's explanation is actually contrary to the text of Genesis. Much of Mount Everest, which is not much higher than some of the mountains which Compare describes here, can easily be seen from Kathmandu, a city which is 124 miles away. But the top of Mount Everest can be seen from as far away as 211 miles. So these facts, together with Compare's own admission that the Tarim Basin is only about 350 miles wide, unravel Compare's claim that this was the area of the flood of Noah, as those who had survived it would not have avoided seeing the peaks of 25,000 
to 28,000 foot high mountains, which were not covered with water, according to Compare. So if the flood were in this basin, it could not have been said that all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered and the mountains were covered. That's what Genesis says. All the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered or under the whole sky were covered and the mountains were covered. Compre is claiming that the visible hills were covered, but not the mountains. Contrary to what it says in the text. Therefore, the flood could not have been in this basin. If you are in the center of this basin, you are no more than 175 miles from the nearest mountains, some of which are 25,000 and 28,000 feet high. Noah's Ark was floating around the top of the water as the land was flooded. If it was in this basin and the ark isn't anchored in the center, it's going to float around from side to side with the current as the water rises or, or, or starts to fall. They're going, going to see those mountains that are huge mountains that are only 175 miles away. Compré is drawing a ridiculously childish picture of Noah's flood forcing it to fit into this valley, into this Taran Basin, and it doesn't work. Or all the mountains were not covered with water. Compré is claiming that the visible hills were covered, but not the mountains, contrary to what it says in the text. Therefore, the flood could not have been in this basin. Rather, the description is more accurate of a wider area and a wide plain from which very tall mountains in the distance would not have been visible. So now, continuing with Compare, he asks, what about Genesis 8-4 reading, and the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat? And here he's doing a little better. Sometimes failure to translate can be as misleading as mistranslation, because Ararat is given as a proper name, a proper noun, even in the Hebrew lexicons. Most people understand this to mean Mount Ararat in Armenia, some 1,600 miles west of the Taran Basin. This is not what the Bible says. First of all, note it reads mountains of Ararat, mountains being in the plural, while Mount Ararat in Armenia is only a single peak. However, Mount Ararat in Armenia was known until comparatively recent times as Mount Massis. Nobody had ever heard of it being called Mount Ararat in Bible times. Furthermore, the Hebrew word Ararat means only the tops of the hills. Therefore, correctly translated, Genesis 8-4 only says the ark came to rest upon the top of the high hills, some of the lower mountains which were within the valley, and actually Mount Ararat in the Armenian highlands is in far eastern Turkey, and it is 1,700 miles from the, from the extreme western edge of the Taran Basin, while I would prefer to measure distances from the center of the basin. But Compare is correct that the word Ararat has a generic meaning. In my opinion, 
It comes from the Hebrew words ar, or mountain, and eretz, or land, and it means mountain land. The same word, ararat, is also translated in the King James Version as Armenia. Another word that I believe is derived from Hebrew. Armenia is from ar, or mountain, and mini, or parts. A min, or mini, means parts in Hebrew, part or parts. So Armini means mountain parts, Armenia. That same Hebrew word, min or mini, gives us our English words such as mince and minute or minute. In any event, Compre is correct that the Ararat in Genesis chapter 7 is not necessarily the mountain in far eastern Anatolia, which was later called by that name. Now he takes a digression to discuss aspects of the denominational fantasy of finding Noah's Ark. A recent newspaper report mentions an expedition equipped with the latest electronic equipment, which is going to Mount Ararat in Armenia to find the Ark. The expedition will melt the ice, which covers what they think is the Ark, by coating it with black powdered carbon. They, they won't find the Ark because it isn't there. Now that part I would agree with. <clears throat> Several expeditions have gone to Mount Ararat to find the Ark. Some of them got within sight of a mass on the side of the mountain, which, from that particular point of view, looked to be shaped somewhat like a ship. That point has been very carefully inspected from the air by airplanes flying over it very closely. It has proven to be nothing but a ledge of rock which does give a silhouette shape like a ship. When seen from the right direction, I need not mention the many places such as the Grand Canyon, etc., where similar ship rocks can be seen and none of them are Noah's Ark. When we carefully examine the whole affair, and correct the mistranslations, we find that there is no conflict between what the Bible really says and either science or history. In fact, there never is any such conflict. It is only the preachers who find themselves contradicted by either science or history. This is only because they either won't take the trouble to find out what the Bible really says or they have made the mistranslation a supposedly sacred church doctrine, and now they are stuck with it. Don't let any church shake your faith in the Bible. The Bible is always right, even if the preachers are often wrong. And I would say that even if your preacher is Bertrand Compare, the Bible is right, although I do not want to sound arrogant. When our teachers are wrong, we must correct them, or our learning is in vain. So I pray that this is a lesson to us all. We may contrive schemes which sound true, but if we do not inspect them from every possible angle and in every detail, we are bound to err grievously. And even when we do so, we may still err. So we must always be willing to correct ourselves. Now, I'm not done with Compré yet, but Compré now returns to Chinese legends.
However, with all certainty, the flood of Noah had preceded the Chinese king known as Emperor Yao by nearly a thousand years. But Compare says, let's remember another thing, the Chinese historical records. The Shu King records that during the reign of King Yao, at a time beginning about the date of Noah's flood, which to Compare is only 2345 BC, the Huangho River carried excessive floods for three generations. Drainage out of the Tarim Basin to the eastward would have been carried off in the Huangho River and would account for this. And one thing is certain, during this time the Chinese subsisted by eating rats, cats, and dogs. But I really do not care about appeals to Chinese legends in order to validate the Christian scriptures. Returning to Compare. Now we come to another false doctrine taught in many churches. Since nobody survived in all the earth except Noah and his family, everybody now living is a descendant of Noah and related by blood, no matter what race they belong to. We have already learned the flood did not cover the whole earth, but only one valley about 350 by 650 miles in size. Chinese history was not interrupted by the flood, although they do report purely local floods in the Huangho Valley where the waters were draining off. We have seen that Egyptian history is not interrupted by the flood, so the continent of Africa was not touched by it, and the Negro race continued unaffected by it. And of course, I would agree that the Negro in sub-Saharan Africa was unaffected by the flood. There's no doubt because there certainly weren't any Negroes on the Ark of Noah. But here we will ignore the additional assertions on the locations of the flood, as I believe they are already invalidated. Compre is certainly correct in his assertions concerning Noah, where he says, it would be absurd to think Noah and his wife, both of them being white, could have, could have one white child, one Negro child, and one Chinese child. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 through 25, when Yahweh created the world and its inhabitants and made the laws governing their reproduction. He did not make it absurd chaos with whales giving birth to cattle and fish hatching out of birds' eggs. His law, several times repeated for emphasis, is always that each creature must bring forth strictly after its own kind. And of course, we wholeheartedly agree with Compare here that all of the descendants of Noah were indeed white, unless any of them race mixed later in history. And it is apparent that many of them did. But originally, it is historically demonstrable that they were all white, whether they were of Shem, Ham, or Japheth. That is the subject of one of our earliest essays at Christogenia, the race of Genesis 10. However, if all of the people of the world did descend from Noah, then Jude would not have been able to describe fornication as the going after of strange flesh, that word for strange meaning different, and all of the commandments forbidding the children of Israel from committing such fornication 
or race mixing would be nonsense as all races would be of the same flesh. Yet the existence of those laws and the related statements in Scripture also proves that not all races come from Noah, continuing with Compare. The churches that teach this false doctrine of everybody being descended from Noah never got it from the Bible. That is in any true that is in any true translation of the Bible. As Moses wrote it in the Hebrew language, under divine inspiration, the Bible correctly tells that Noah's descendants went out into a world already populated by people who had lived right through the time of the flood and were still going strong. Now, this is true. As we have already demonstrated here in relation to the Nephilim, the Rephaim, the Kenites, and the various other tribes of Canaan whose origins are not found in Genesis 10 or in earlier chapters of the scriptures. But it is not true in the way which Compare attempts to prove it here. From the ill-begotten Fenton translation of the Bible, where he, which, which he next cites where he says, Farah Fenton's modern English translation gives this correctly, and this certainly is not true. Fenton really screwed this up. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, we read about the descendants of Noah's son, Japheth. From these, they spread themselves over the sea coasts of the countries of the nations, each with their language amongst the Gentile tribes. That's Fenton's translation. Genesis 10, verse 20, tells of the descendants of Noah's son's ha son, Ham. These were the sons of Ham in their tribes and languages in the regions of the heathen. And that is Fenton's translation. And then Compare says, Genesis chapter 10, verse 31 completes it. These are the sons of Shem by their tribes and by their languages in their countries among the heathen. Now, before I comment on the value of the Fenton Bible, I will present Compare's conclusion to his sermon, where he said, So never let anybody tell you the Bible consists of the fables of a primitive people. It is perfectly consistent with all true science and all true history. It is the history of our race, the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Teutonic white race. Now, I would lengthen that list a little because we cannot take the Greeks and Romans and other Adamic people out of it. But this is absolutely true. The Bible is concerned with one race of people only. I'm sorry, I lost my mouse a second. The Bible is concerned with one race of people only, the white Adamic race, and the history and origins of any other race have no part in it, none whatsoever, unless they are described as coming in contact with its white Adamic subjects. But it is not true that any of the nations which had descended from the sons of Noah had purposely settled among the heathen. 
So what follows are comments which I had made at the Christagenia Forum on this very subject in July of 2013. The subject of the original post, which I was writing in response to, is a question on deciding between the James Moffat or Farrar Fenton Bible translation. I will edit these comments only slightly here. And I said that I have perused the Fenton Bible on a few occasions, but I have not read it through. From what I have seen, however, while Fenton had a few good ideas, and for those he is loved by many Christian identity adherents, he made just as many serious errors. For instance, his rendering of Elohim in the 82nd Psalm is disgraceful. If your only perspective is the Old Testament, it is fine. But through the understanding which our Savior has provided, which is the best way to understand the Old Testament, as Paul said, we have the mind of Christ. From that perspective, it is terrible. It is terrible because Christ himself referred to the 82nd Psalm when he said, is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. And that's what it says in Greek. And the word L in the 82nd Psalm, the word L, Fenton had translated as judges, Elohim in the plural. Fenton translated it as judges. But when Yahshua Christ cited that psalm, that same line, he translated it as steoi, according to the gospel, as steoi, or gods. So if Christ used the term gods, and a Christian man is translating the Old Testament, you would think that he would want to have the same interpretation as Yahshua Christ. You would think that. I mean, that, that's what I would try to do. I wouldn't purposely interpret it contrary to the interpretation of Christ himself. He is the word made flesh. So he is whom we should follow in interpreting that Old Testament. That's recorded in John chapter 10, verse 34. So while the Hebrew word Elohim may be understood to mean judges, and there are clearly places where it should be, yet if Christ interprets it as gods in this psalm, and the words are not to be confused in Greek, then how could any man following Christ interpret it as judges? So for this, I believe Fenton fails. And this is one example that he did not consider the greater judgment of Christ in order to gain a better understanding of Scripture. Where Fenton did do well, I have acknowledged him in my notes, where he correctly understood Paul's works of the law phrase to be referring to the rituals, which can also be demonstrated from other biblical literature. Now, from there, in that post, I proceeded to discuss my ignorance of Mofat, because I only know the Mofat translation from Compare Sermons. I never read it for myself. And then I spoke about my own methods of biblical interpretation. Then I immediately 
Immediately following that post, I made a second post in that same thread discussing Fenton's treatment of these three verses which Compare cited from his translation of Genesis chapter 10. I said one other important Fenton error, or perhaps innovation. In Genesis chapter 10, in each of verses 5, 20, 31, and 32, Fenton seems to have missed a third-person plural pronoun. This facilitated his renderings amongst the Gentile tribes or among the heathens, rather than, as the King James and the Greek of the Septuagint would have it, in their nations or after their nations, which the Hebrew certainly supports and insists upon according to all of the resources for the Hebrew, which I had available. I've never seen anything contrary. Fenton's rendering in English seems intentionally designed to convey the idea that the Adamic race was purposely settled among other races. It's not true. Fenton created lies when he translated those passages in Genesis chapter 10, and Compare followed those lies without checking them for himself. If Compare checked them, he would have noticed those third-person plural pronouns in the Hebrew, that it wasn't the nations or among the heathens, it was in their nations. And that word heathen and nation both come from the same Hebrew word, goyim. Goy in the singular or goyim in the plural. So you can't take a Hebrew phrase that says their nations and make it among the heathens and forget about the pronoun. The third person plural pronoun, their. Fenton just discarded the pronoun and translated the passage the way he thought was convenient to his agenda. So I said in that post, I would agree that there were other hominids here on earth when the Adamic race was created and multiplied, but I would not twist the scripture in order to convey such an idea. And twisting the scripture here, Fenton caused more damage than good because he would lead one to believe that it is the non-Adamic nations which are referred to in the balance of scripture where the phrases the heathens or the nations are used, and that is not true. Fenton's rendering in English seems purposely designed to have the Bible acknowledge the non-Adamic races as if they were legitimate members of our society in the promotion, purposeful or not, of certain British Israel ideas, which I, for my part, find rather objectionable. And after that, I made a third post in that same thread, which I won't repeat here, criticizing Fenton for some of his renderings of certain words in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. Farrar Fenton, being a British Israel adherent, embraced the so-called Dominion Theology doctrine by which such men sought to legitimize the British Empire. When the empire crumbled, they became subjects of scorn and ridicule. 
Fenton's translation of those verses in Genesis chapter 10 certainly also deserved to be scorned and ridiculed. With this, I pray that we have proven that Noah's flood was not worldwide, but I also pray that we have demonstrated the importance of continual introspection and self-correction of the basis of our doctrines and the assertions which we make in order to disseminate them. That means we must also perpetually evaluate and correct all of our teachers until we are finally blessed with the presence of the teacher, Yahshua Christ. Our Christian identity profession, because it is truth, should not ever be mingled with lies. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not the God of any of the other races. Certainly not the God of the Jews. And good night.